hymn number 270. Jeff has asked us that we mark that, and certainly we're happy to do that and look forward to the singing of that hymn at the close of the lesson. Certainly it would also be well to express appreciation to Brother Gary for filling in last Sunday evening the lesson that he delivered. I believe he told me was going to involve the shoes of a Christian. I'm sure that was a very memorable as well as a very penetrating and compelling lesson that Brother Gary brought on that occasion. As always, and as was mentioned in the bulletin, how thankful we are for men such as he, Trail, and all the others who can so capably and ably fill this pulpit and deliver very challenging, powerful, and most important, truthful lessons from the Word of God. How blessed and thankful certainly we are at Pippin. As we give thought, too, about our continuing study in the book of 1 Samuel, might we keep in mind that our youngsters are rolling fairly close to the Bible Bowl in terms of its uh, actual taking place. That takes place again on the second Saturday in the month of September. So that certainly at this point isn't that many Saturdays away. They continue to make their preparation as they study the first 24 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. We continue this evening in our consideration of that book as well, coming in fact on this occasion to the next two chapters in our study. As you can see on the screen on the wall to my left, a number of things might already be mentioned, not the least of which is the role of individuals that we have been introduced to throughout the course of this book. Individuals ranging all the way from David to Samuel to Eli, as well as the character of this very interesting man named Saul. All the while, we did see most recently in the last chapters the very thoughts during the bottom of that slide, namely the selection of David and his rather memorable battle with Goliath. It is the case that that's how tonight's lesson, in fact, begins because the events that surround chapter 18, the first lesson, in fact, of tonight, will build upon the very issues that followed that one. As the previous chapter drew to its, conclu into its conclusion, we, in, in a very brief and summary fashion, saw the following. We noticed that the God of heaven had made the decree that Saul's kingdom would not continue, namely that Saul would not continue to reign over the children of Israel, but rather one better than he would be selected to occupy that office. As such, in chapter 16, God selected David to be his replacement, to be his successor, if you will. We did notice that not only that was that selection made, but God also made the decree that Samuel was to anoint him, and that he did. It is interesting that in the next chapter, though young he was, he actually battled a giant, one far greater in terms of size than he, and David was victorious. We easily appreciated then that the battle, of course, was the Lord's all along, and that's what allowed David such tremendous victory over that Philistine giant. As that chapter closed, though, there was a statement that was made that really is the inaugural one for the chapter before us tonight. As you can see, tonight we'll turn our attention in a historical way to chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel. And then once we have at least highlighted that history section, what might be some thoughts in a way of a less set of lessons that you and I might extract from it. As you can see near the top of that slide, one of the first things of note for us in this chapter is the rather noteworthy friendship that developed between Jonathan and David. It was the case, wasn't it, that his father, that is Saul, Jonathan's father, 
was bothered by that distressing spirit. And David was sought for, and he came and there resided at the palace so that upon playing his harp, he might bring an element of soothing character to Saul during those distressed and troublesome times. As that particular arrangement continued, apparently a very deep and abiding friendship developed between David and Jonathan. A friendship that will in fact will bubble to the surface a number of times in this chapter and those that follow. As we look at the nature of it, you'll notice that the friendship was sufficiently strong, verses 3 and 4 of 1 Samuel 18, that a covenant was forged between them. And it was stated that they loved one another. That degree of appreciation, that degree of love is perhaps highlighted in verse 4 when it says that Jonathan even gave much of his weaponry and some of his clothing, that is his outer robe and other things, actually to David. It was a rather high element back in that day for one to give portions of his weaponry and also elements of his armament and clothing to yet another, but yet that is what Jonathan did. In the verses that follow, beginning in verse 5, we notice that a very high and complimentary statement is made of David. It says, "...he behaved himself wisely." That statement, in fact, is made three times in this chapter. Once in verse number 5, a little bit later in verses 14 and 15, and finally in verse 30, the closing verse to the chapter. It highlights the very interesting and youthful way in which David chose to conduct himself in a way that was wise. Remember, he wasn't an old and experienced person at this point, but yet in youth he chose to act wisely not at all foolishly or following the youthful lusts that could plague those of that day just as easily as they can today. It reminds all of us, and certainly those in the audience that are young, you too behave yourself wisely. Do so with the intent to lift high that which is right, even if it isn't popular. As we shall find, David acting wisely would lead more than once to someone trying to take his life. But yet the Lord was with him. And all the while he did emerge in a victorious way over all those things that Saul and others attempted to do to him. Wise living, as determined by the standard of God, is still always the best, isn't it? As you can see again in verses 5 through 8, we do notice that a rather interesting statement is therein found, especially in verse 7. After David returned from defeating the Philistine giant, it says the women sang something. I would invite you to read that particular text with me. Verse 7, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. They were making, though perhaps they didn't necessarily intend to offend anyone, they were making a comparison, and it greatly agitated Saul. Saul, in fact, commented in the next verse, They have ascribed to David more than they have ascribed to me. As a result, verse 9 says, Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Saul had an eye out for him because there was already a degree of attention being shown to David, a degree of consideration, a degree of noteworthiness that was not being given to him. That will, of course, ultimately lead to an even greater ruin to Saul, but it would also lead to a large host of problems for David. As you can see, beginning in verse number 10, on the very next day, the very next day, we find that that distressing spirit was troubling Saul. 
we learned about that distressing spirit back in chapter 16. After the spirit of the Lord left, uh, left Saul, we found that there was this evil spirit, as the King James Version called it. This troubling spirit on that next day, verses 10 and 11, was such that while it was troubling Saul, David was playing on his harp. But we notice that Saul had a different idea. Verse 11 states it like this. Saul cast the javelin, that is the spear, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. He, in fact, made a, an attempt on the very life of David on that occasion, throwing and casting the spear at him from the text, not once but twice on that occasion. We do notice, though, that David avoided. David escaped out of his presence, and so his life was spared on that occasion. But here was the very one, the man named Saul, who we remember that invited David to come to the palace so that he could, in fact, soothe that spirit by the playing of that instrument. And now this spirit is such that in his enragement against him, he has now attempted to take his life. In verses 12 and following, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. What a momentous statement. The Lord was with him and that led to Saul being fearful of him. He was well aware it would seem that the kingdom was soon going to be given to David. In fact, he himself would even make the statement on one occasion, what more doth he lack besides the kingdom? Saul apparently could see that God was with this one David. And as such, it seems that all that David touched was well and all that he touched ended up correctly. We shall see that that will continue for many chapters to come. For now, we might notice as this particular chapter continues onward, Saul had a different plan in mind. He had made an attempt on David's life, but that had failed. Now we notice, beginning in verse 17, that a different attempt, a plan B, if you please, is undertaken. At this point, Saul makes the following offer. I will, David, give you my daughter Merib to wife, if you will continue to be valiant in your fighting for me. Saul knew very well that the Philistines had not been thoroughly and completely defeated yet. They were still a very powerful enemy. And Saul, according to verse number 17, was hopeful that as David continued fighting against the Philistines, that his life would be taken. Isn't that awful to wish for someone to be dead? to wish that they might be defeated and to wish that their life might come to an end. And yet, that was what Saul was hoping. You'll notice that as he had promised Merib, his oldest daughter, to David, his wife, things, of course, turned out very differently in that regard as well. David first was extremely humbled that he might be invited to be a part of the kingly family. But we notice in verse number 19 that Merib was ultimately given to someone else as his wife, given to a man named Adriel. We notice, though, that in the very next set of verses, Saul became aware of something else. He became aware of the fact that his younger daughter, Michael, loved David. Not only was she smitten with him, and not only was she very interested in him, the text says that she, in fact, loved him. Saul saw that as an opportunity to again do something that might be helpful to, in fact, take away his life. We notice in the verses that follow, verse 21 says, I will give him her, 
I will give him Michael, my younger daughter. But note the thought that entered Saul's mind, that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. It was again Saul's hope that upon marrying Michael or becoming in fact her husband, that that would give him an opportunity to again arrange things against David so that in fact she, his daughter Michael, might be a snare to David and that ultimately the Philistines might again ultimately take his life. In verses 22 and following, Saul commanded his servants then to that very end. Share with David the thought that I'll be more than happy to give Michael, my daughter, to you as wife. As all those things took place, only a very interesting dowry was in fact set forth. A hundred Philistine foreskins was all that in fact on that occasion was requested of David, and David was more than happy to do that. In fact, he made available two hundred Philistine foreskins, And with that, the chapter closes and all seems to be well. David's life has been spared and into chapter 19 we go. The very first verse in chapter 19, however, reminds us that Saul was not yet finished. The text says, Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. That they should kill David. Here was the king. And he had now given orders to his son Jonathan as well as to the other servants and messengers that David's life needed to be taken. In the verses that follow, Jonathan's friendship to David is again seen in that he defends David. He opposes his father and in fact inquires as to the reason for the order given to kill him. Saul is somewhat agitated and bothered by Jonathan's request and his interest in saving the life of David. It is interesting that Jonathan on this occasion has the nerve to identify his father's actions as sinful. That is an interesting and telling comment in verses 5 and 6. You'll notice in verses 7 and following, we find that at this moment in time at least, Jonathan was able to persuade Saul that David's life needed not to be taken on this occasion, but rather to be, for it to be spared was the best because there was no reason for taking David's life. Beginning in verse number 8, we notice that war continued with the Philistines. That war is highlighted in the ways that we shall be able to appreciate In some of the brief comments on this slide, David again led Israel to victory. And that victory was rather noteworthy. But it is rather interesting in verse number 10, one more time Saul cast that spear toward David. One more time trying to take his life. That's now the third occasion he has tried that. And all three times he has in fact failed. In verses 12 and following, we find that David must now flee for his life. And interestingly enough, that will be a theme through the next set of chapters, all the way really through chapter 24, the last chapter that our Bible both students are studying. We will find that David will have to flee from Saul, trying to safeguard and protect his life. We do notice on this occasion in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 19, Even Michael assisted him in escaping the onslaughts and the thwarting hand of Saul. In fact, she let David down through a window. And as he escaped, we readily find that then she put an image in the bed and covered it up and made it appear as if it were him. 
And when Saul's messengers came and they espied him, they didn't check closely enough to see that it was a tomb, and they thought that he was sleeping. She told them that he was sick. After they had returned to Saul and shared this news that he was in the bed, Saul gave orders, you go, and in fact, you take his life. We quickly observed that when they came back this time, of course, they pull things back and find that it was only a deception. And Saul himself was greatly bothered. He even challenged Michael, his daughter, how could you have deceived me this way? She on that occasion said, he under threat of my life told me to let him escape. On that occasion, we noticed that more than one lie was told as well. Maybe on another occasion, one could discuss the set of lies involved in these kind of conversations. We notice in verse 18, David fled and escaped. And it says, he came to Samuel. As he fled from Saul, he went to Ramah, and there he communed with that gentleman that we've encountered so much before, that prophet named Samuel. As he did so, they had an interesting conversation. It is rather interesting in verses 21 and 22 that a part of that conversation resulted in the interesting features that Samuel tried to encourage David. That encouragement closes the chapter, and we find amazingly that even on this occasion, Saul received word that David was there. This man, so enraged by pursuit and jealousy, went to this location to try and again take the life of David. But as he did so, we noticed that he actually began to prophesy. This one, so enraged and tried to kill David, was now himself able to prophesy by the operation of the Spirit of God. We find, oddly enough, in verses 23 and 24, that in that prophecy, the time came he stripped off all his clothes and he laid naked all day and all night before Samuel. What an odd and awkward arrangement that must have been. We might certainly claim that as the chapter closes, it only whets our appetite for what chapter number 20 is going to bring on the occasion of our next study. It is then that we shall find more odd behavior from Saul, and we shall also find some interesting responses to that behavior from David himself. Might we at this point at least reflect briefly upon some thoughts quickly to be noted in these chapters before us. We have seen in these two chapters one thing has been the friendship that developed between David and Jonathan. A friendship that certainly is spoken of in an extremely high regard. So close was it that in fact they forged a covenant? So close was it that Jonathan opposed his own kingly father under threat of his own death? So strong was this friendship that Jonathan even again gave his own weaponry and portions of his own kingly clothing to David. As you look at some of the statements about what was made concerning that friendship. I would ask that you think about friendship can be a very powerful thing. Isn't it true that under the encouragement of friendships, many a family has been burst asunder? There comes to be a time when sometimes a friendship, the encouragement, the nature of what's insisted, if you are my friend, you will do this for me despite the fact that we know it's wrong. 
We'll oppose teachers. We'll oppose authority. We'll oppose other arrangements. All the while, because this person who supposedly is our friend has encouraged that we behave this way. No wonder we're admonished in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Those companionships that can be forged, we notice they must be guarded very carefully. They must be looked upon with the greatest of consideration. They can become strong. Over time, two individuals perhaps start out as acquaintance, start out as mere meager friends, but then over time that friendship can grow to the point where even difficulties arise because other things are severed. Even truth is opposed. I'm sure you've known individuals in your life just as I have in mine. Individuals who chose their friends very unwisely. And as a result, the time came that even they broke the law just because they were with the friend who asserted it. And just because they were with one whose personality was sufficiently strong that they in fact dictated the friendship. That was tragic and it's sad. When you think about this friendship, we shall find that it will be a strong guide for both David and Jonathan through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. On those occasions when Jonathan's father Saul are trying to take David's life, it will sufficiently bother Jonathan that he will in fact take measures in hopes of protecting and safeguarding the life of David, all the while knowing his own father is out to kill him. The time will come when Jonathan dies first, and on the occasion of his death, David will echo some of the strongest single sentiments in all of the Old Testament. Perhaps for now we might notice yet another interesting thought. It is a thought that I've highlighted somewhat near the bottom section of that slide. There are those who use the friendship of David and Jonathan as a singular supporting element, a plank if you will, in claiming here is an example of God's approval of Old Testament homosexuality. They will point to the strong friendship between Jonathan and David and say, there it is. These two were engaged in a homosexual relationship. They will even use particularly 2 Samuel 1.26, the occasion of Jonathan's death and what David said as elemental evidence in their mind. On that occasion, it is true that David said that the friendship and the love that we shared surpassed the love of women. Based on that, at least as a part, they claim these two were engaged in a homosexual relationship and thus God approved it. What might we say in answer to that? If that is the strongest element to which they can turn in the Old Testament, if it is the strongest evidence to which they might be able to provide support, is that a fair interpretation of the sacred text? First of all, might we say this? We are told in Leviticus 20.13 as well as Leviticus 18.22 that homosexuality was condemned in that era. What then might we say if here is one, two in fact, who are engaging in this? First of all, we are told, aren't we, that David was a man after God's own heart. And that, that was said prior to this time. That was said back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 16 and following. If it's true then that David is a man after God's own heart, 
then we can appreciate God's Word had said that it is abomination to engage in that kind of activity. In fact, wasn't it explicitly declared, again in Leviticus 20.13, if a man lie with a woman, or lie with a man as with a woman, it is abomination. Both are to be put to death. That was the Lord's decree through the law of Moses, and yet David was a Jew. He was a descendant of that line of Abraham through Jacob. And therefore, that would be contradictory to claim that God approved it here but condemned it earlier. That certainly must not be the correct and proper conclusion. We might notice here that surely the statement must be noted. It doesn't come out and say that they were engaging in that kind of activity. The kind of friendship that David enjoyed with Jonathan was not a homosexual one. It was a friendship that was in fact forged in the character of all that Jonathan had done with him and for him. He had saved his life on a number of occasions. By the time David made that statement in 2 Samuel 1 again, Jonathan had helped save his life from Saul several times. He had in fact assisted him in taking over the kingship as the successor to Saul. And not only that, he had been very important in helping him to in fact solidify his reign on the kingdom. Jonathan had done many things to assist David in his reign, to assist him in occupying that throne, and to carry out the work of God in his life. It was by no means a homosexual relationship. Too many verses in the New Testament remind us time and again that God condemns that way of life. He loves those individuals hoping that they will repent hoping that they will, in fact, appreciate the teaching of the Word of God on that point. But He does not approve their lifestyle as it is. Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, all highlight in rather clear ways, doesn't it, the God's insistence that they think seriously and make repentance while the opportunity and the time is theirs. As we close that slide before us, might we wonder about yet another element in these chapters, namely the following. What might we say in particular about that jealousy, that kind of behavior that Saul exhibited? This one has come so far. Saul at first was again that one hand-selected by God to be the first king of Israel. He was innocent. He was humble. He was unpresumptuous. He was, in fact, very selfless. All the qualities that described him in chapters 9 and 10, it seems, have now been washed away under the overwhelming tide of jealousy. Now, this one David, he has slain his ten thousands, but I only my thousands. And from that day forward, Saul eyed him. He had a very suspicious eye toward David from that time onward. That suspicious eye highlighted and not once, not twice, but three times he tried to take his life. And he has even in fact tried to enter him into a marriage in such a way it will be a snare to him. Ultimately that he might in fact lead to his death. By this point that one that was so selfless and so unpretentious and so humble is now, we notice, acting very ungodly, acting in a very sinful fashion and acting in such a way that it brings the very cloud of God's wrath upon him. Oh, how Saul has changed. He is not the same man we read about back in chapter 9. In many ways, when we think about that distressing spirit, 
it prompts us to give thought to this. That distressing spirit back in chapter 16, it says, was from the Lord. Might we now ask this question, if that distressing spirit was from the Lord, could Saul be blamed for what he was now doing? Could he claim that I have been taking attempts on David's life, but God, you're the one that was causing it. I'm not to blame because this distressing spirit is from you. Could it be that Saul could have argued that point and could he stand in the day of judgment in such a way that perhaps all is well with his soul? Let's give some thought to that distressing spirit from a moment. We are well aware that chapter 16 verse 14 had said that that evil spirit, that distressing spirit was indeed from the Lord. But by the same token, look at what has happened as a result of all of those things here the jealousy that has now become the lot of Saul's approach. Perhaps might we ponder for a moment the place of jealousy. Have you and I witnessed it? Have we observed it firsthand? Have we seen the kind of things that it can bring about? I have seen it in the workplace. In graduate school, there were those who were somewhat jealous of others. It wasn't, they weren't jealous of me, thankfully but those who were far more talented than I, those who were more astute, those who had better grades, those who were better researchers, those who had the opportunity to enjoy fellowships when others didn't. And yet there were others that were jealous of them and often would stab them in the back, as the old saying goes, would perhaps set a snare before them in such a way that they would lead to their problems and lead to their downfall lead to their lack of influence or reputation. Isn't it true that not only there but in other places, we have witnessed it also, have we not, in athletic events? Perhaps four of the members of a team seem to work well together, but one is jealous of one or more of the others. So much so that they'll not encourage the teamwork. They will in fact try to dispense with it seeking better things for themselves as opposed to the team. And doesn't that seemingly always end in the same way? The team seems to not fulfill their potential. They seem to, in fact, be beaten by those you would think they could defeat and all because the teamwork isn't there. It can happen in the church as well, can it? A group of people and one or more is jealous of one or more of the others. And so the work is hindered. Ideas are hampered, progress is thwarted, and all the while jealousy has been at work. The Bible has much to say about jealousy, doesn't it? And by and large, it isn't good. When we think about some of the attributes of jealousy, we might well begin in Proverbs 14, verse 30. It is, of course, the first cousin of envy, isn't it? When in fact one has an interest in taking advantage of another, envious of what they have, envious of what they can do. The inspired writer said that envy is the rottenness of the bones. Rottenness of the bones. It leads to that which is putrid. It leads to that which is ugly. It leads to that which is deteriorating. It leads to that which smells bad. Jealousy. Envy. It can, in fact, like a canker and like that one apple that's somewhat rotten destroys so much around it. The rottenness of the bones. 
In Psalm 78, verse 58, we find on that occasion another statement about the character of jealousy and the evil to which it can lead. In Proverbs 6, verse 34, we find that jealousy is the rage of a man. Have you known of individuals who, in fact, under the threat of jealousy and under the action of it, can almost in a rage pursue another? Saul did it. He would not let David rest. Before we're through with 1 Samuel, he will chase him all over the countryside, hoping to find him so that he can kill him. He would not be appeased by anything that Jonathan would say. He would not be calmed by anything that sensibility would bring to him. In a rage, he would pursue David. We understand, of course, that he failed in all the attempts, and David ultimately will be the last man standing as you can see near the bottom of that slide, it's rather amazing to reflect on Song of Solomon 8, verse 6. Written by Solomon himself, the very son of this man David. On that occasion, it is he who would say, speaking about love and jealousy, speaking about cruelty, jealousy is cruel as the grave. What cruelty can be brought to bear by jealousy? What actions that otherwise would be unthinkable? May we with earnestness under the care and watchful eye of our elders and all of us together strive to keep jealousy at a far distance from the Pippin Church. Jealousy as we read of it in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. We have there one statement in the New Testament that does encourage us to have godly jealousy. That's very different, isn't it? To be excited and in fact, to be singularly jealous for what God has encouraged. We are encouraged to have that kind of jealousy. But how different that is than this common, earthly, carnal, mundane variety in which someone wishes, in fact, to harm or hurt another simply because they wish to have what they do. Friendship and now jealousy. It does perhaps lead us to see one final lesson this evening. That lesson I have stated, perhaps drawing from the 19th chapter of 1 Samuel. It is interesting that when David fled from Saul, he did flee to Samuel. He fled to Ramah, to that little dwelling place of Naoth in Ramah, and there he communed with Samuel. In that communing, isn't it rather interesting and at least indirect that the place to which David went was the place where Samuel was. David had a great deal of respect for Samuel, a great deal of appreciation for the, what he stood for, the character of what he was all about. And this is the place where David went. You'll notice he didn't go back to Bethlehem. He didn't go back to other places to which he might have had an interest. He went to where God's prophet was. May I suggest that at least for you and me, there is, of course, for us, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24. And we're able to appreciate that you and I too can flee to the place where solace, encouragement, and comfort can in fact be found. We from time to time sing a song in that book. I believe it's number 370 in this particular book. Living below in this old sinful world, hardly a comfort can afford. We can pause at that point and notice we do live here in this world, and so often matters cluster about us in ways that are so discouraging. 
Notice, though, that first stanza goes on to say, Hardly a comfort can afford, striving alone to face temptation sore. Where could I go but to the Lord? Neighbors are kind. I love them, every one. We get along in sweet accord. But when my soul needs manna from above, where could I go but to the Lord? That song, again, number 370, reminds us that David had much right, didn't he? He seemingly knew exactly where to go to find in the words of Samuel the wise counsel that he might exhibit, what he might need to do to remain safe from the onslaughts of Saul. And in that way, of course, to ultimately rise to even greater prominence as he would occupy the throne of the king. Maybe when you and I think about all of that, what a refuge do you and I have to which we can flee? Didn't David, the very one of whom we've been studying, did he not say in Psalm 3 verse 5, Therefore the Lord sustained me, and I slept. We'll find later in Psalm 56, 11, as he therein would state, that he himself in God have I put my trust. I will not fear what man can do unto me. In Hebrews 13, we notice on that occasion, the inspired writer so powerfully said, speaking about the nature of the providence of God and his safeguarding of those that are his own, he there said, God, of course, is the one for us. And because of that, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19, perhaps in one final observation, we have on that occasion the statement that God has made a promise. The God of heaven has made a promise. And we're reminded on that occasion that God cannot lie. And if God has made a promise, we each might with interest ask, what was the promise to which the Hebrew writer referred? That there is a refuge to which we can flee for refuge. That marvelous solace of Jesus the Christ, our Lord. Have you fled to Him tonight for refuge for your soul? So that He, by the safety of His wings, if you please, can cover just like He would have done Jerusalem? Recall Jesus said even regarding Jerusalem in Matthew 23 verses 36 and following. He said to them on that occasion, Oh, how often would I have gathered you beneath my wings in protection, but you wouldn't come. He invites all of you tonight as well as myself to come to Him. And I know that many in the sound of my voice have done that. May we continue to live in the safety and protection of His protection. But if you have not done that, why not tonight? A song of encouragement we're about to sing in just a moment. As we've studied about Saul and David and Jonathan and others, may we never forget those Old Testament lessons are simply pointing us to the grander lessons of the New Testament. Jesus is, of course, the one to which we must look. Have you looked to Him? And have you, in fact, turned over control of your life to Him? We would be honored, in fact, to assist you in your obedience tonight if you haven't done that. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believe in that. Repent then of your sins. Understanding how terrible they are, how awful they are, and what God, in fact, did on your behalf because of them. After that repentance, be willing to confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could be of assistance to you, why not tonight? 
if you have become a member of that blessed body of Christ and have known the faithfulness that went with clean, pure gospel living, but you now have slipped far from it, you know that things are not as they ought to be with your soul. Earlier tonight, Jeff led us in the singing, It is well with my soul. Could you sing that with confidence? Could you sing it with reliability and assurance? If not, it's time to make things right with your soul. Only you can make that first step. God has promised to do His part, but you must do yours. We'd be happy to pray with you, to pray for you, to petition God for forgiveness of your sins, and He's promised to do it upon your belief and your repentance and your confession of them. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, we'd be excited to assist you, even now while together we stand and while we sing.